Welcome back to the Down to Earth podcast. It's often that the best healers were inspired by their own personal health struggles. This is the case with our guest today. Our guest today is Jessica Mernan. Jessica is an acclaimed author, speaker, creative consultant, and wellness leader. She's the author of two acclaimed books, Know Your Endo and One Part Plant. Jessica's struggle with endometriosis propelled her into a journey of helping others with their health struggles. Her work has been featured in many publications, including Goop, Shape Magazine, Bon Appetit, Mind Body Green, and The Coveter. This is an episode you don't want to miss. Here we go. Welcome to the Down to Earth Podcast. We're your hosts, sibling duo, Jonathan and Lorena. In this podcast, we'll be spilling the tea on all things health and wellness related. This podcast is designed to motivate you to take care of your physical, mental, and spiritual health. We'll be bringing on doctors, healers, fitness experts, business leaders, and innovators. Thanks for joining us in our mission of making the world a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Here we go. Hello, Jessica. How are you today? Good, good. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So we've both been really big fans of your work and your books for quite some time now. And I'd love to start off by learning a little bit more about your story and what ultimately got you to where you are today. Oh my gosh. I mean, (laughs) I think that we can just blame or not blame, but we can give all the credit to endometriosis because, you know, it was never... I never really set out to write books on health or even make a cookbook. I mean, my background was graphic design in college. And I really thought that for most of my career, that's what I would do. But when my health, specifically with my endometriosis, just got to a point where I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. And I just, you know, I'm sure if you read my book, there were a lot of days where I just didn't want to be alive or be awake. And so I really took my health into my own hands. I made big changes. I completely altered the way that I live. And I was now able to manage and live with endometriosis. And there was a part of me that just felt like there's no way that I can't share this with other people that are feeling this way. And, you know, I'm not obviously a doctor, but I think that what we can do when we have taken our health into our own hands and learn how to advocate for ourselves, then we can teach others how to do that too, even if we can't give them specific medical advice. Absolutely. And I think it's really admirable that you turned a health challenge of your own to inspire and educate others who have the same condition. And I think, you know, you mentioned you're not a doctor, but there are so many doctors who treat endometriosis, but don't have it. So to have that personal experience and be able to create a community around it, I think is really brilliant and amazing. Well, thanks. Yeah. And I mean, I think that with endo, I always say that feeling less alone in it or just knowing that you're not the only one is half the battle. Because I think once you get a diagnosis, you start going down this rabbit hole of a lot of really sad, I call it kind of the endo gloom and doom vortex of the internet. And I think that we also deserve some hope with this too. And I think that's what I like to do with my work is, you know, we can't cure this. You might have really terrible days still, but let's have some hope as well. Absolutely. Now I want to go back because I know that a lot of 
happens, you know, like women will have painful periods and bring mm-hmm. concern to their doctors and they don't get diagnosed till, you know, years later on in life. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear about your journey and how you were diagnosed. Oh my gosh. It's so interesting because I, you know, because I am such a part of the endo community and I get a lot of messages from people. So many people say to me, I've been trying to get an endo diagnosis for five years, or it's been a decade that I've been trying to confirm this. I wasn't on a search for a diagnosis. I didn't, I had never even heard of the word endometriosis. So for me, my pain, the way that I was living my life was just completely normal to me. I didn't see that I needed medical intervention, which is completely sad when you really think about it. But, you know, I saw my mom and how she experienced periods and how she had GI issues and all of the type of issues that I had, she also had. So I thought, well, this is how the women in our family are. You know, my mom had undiagnosed endo. So I wasn't searching for a diagnosis. And it really wasn't until I had a couple of cyst rupture over a couple year period that I would end up in the emergency room multiple times, still not knowing why that I finally had an ER doctor suggesting that I speak to somebody else that led me to a doctor that finally said, you know, let's do an ultrasound for you. So it's weird because it was a very long time to get that diagnosis, but I also wasn't searching for it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also such a shame that periods in general are associated with pain and discomfort Mm -hmm. and it's become normalized. And that's, I mean, that shouldn't be normal. Yeah. Or you have, you know, I only had one friend in my entire high school, middle school friend group that also had painful periods, or at least she talked to them about me. So I think that when you do have them, you don't know that none of your other friends aren't experiencing that. You just kind of think either I'm the weirdo or no one's talking about this. I think what's so cool is, is seeing this next generation of people, you know, on TikTok or on YouTube, like they're talking about periods. Like when I was in high school, people weren't talking about periods at all. So I think what's so cool is, is that there is so much more awareness now for that. Now I say that how exciting it is, but then I also am getting messages from people that say there's still to this day, after 10 years, their doctors are telling them that their painful periods are normal. And they are at least now educated enough to say, actually, no, it's not normal. And that's what I think is so great about something like social media, where people are sharing valuable information, because like you said, you can be your best healthcare advocate and go to your doctor, as opposed to just have them as the authoritative figure on your health and your body. I think it's tricky because I never like to villainize doctors because with endo specifically, a lot of us do need a pretty invasive surgery that will not, if you grow a huge cyst or you have endo lesions, that's not going to go away by drinking green juice. So it is so important to find a doctor that you can have that relationship with because you can do the management tools all day long, but you're going to need help from someone to give you this type of surgery. So it's so imperative to find someone that is listening to you. But I also think someone that is open to you doing management practices as well, because I cannot tell you how many doctors have told me that 
it's great that my diet is working for me, but that's anecdotal or wow, they've never heard of diet helping endo. And so, you know, I'm at the point now where I feel very confident with my choices, but if you're someone that's not so confident yet with that, then you might just say, oh, well, the doctor knows best. So I'm not going to do that anymore. Exactly. I know that's a big issue. I think for a lot of people is they go to their doctor and take everything that they say as just pure hundred percent the right thing to do, but that's not always the case. But it's like, it's hard to understand why. I had someone that just messaged me the other day that said that she went to the ER and she told them that she thought it was her endo. She was having pain up in her lungs and her diaphragm. And the ER doctor told her that endo can't grow outside of the uterus. It's like, but that's what endometriosis is. And so she actually took the time to say, actually endometriosis is when the type of tissue grows outside of the uterus and the doctor went and looked it up and came back and was like, I'm very sorry, you're right. But what if that person didn't have the confidence or courage or even the knowledge to say, actually, no, this is not right. It's right. just, oh my gosh, it, I can get so upset about this, but yeah. And that's what I love about this age of information. Like we were saying, like, I think it requires shared decision-making, knowing your body and speaking up for yourself so that you can have the doctor and their education. And obviously, like you said, if you need surgical intervention or medication, whatever the case may be, but that shared decision-making with the doctors, I think is really valuable. Yeah. And, you know, and I think sometimes advocating for yourself is also just not saying anything and moving on to a new doctor. Mm -hmm. Because I, I know for myself, I just went to a new gynecologist and I was telling him how I was gaining some weight and having some hormonal issues. And his suggestion was for me to join Weight Watchers. <laughs> and so in this moment, I'm like, you know what? I could advocate for myself right now, say how I feel that that won't serve me, feels inappropriate. But instead I was like, okay, that's that's a great suggestion. And then in my head, I'm thinking, I'm just never going to see you again. Okay. So I think sometimes we can also choose to advocate ourselves by saying, Peace. See you later. 100%. <laughs> now, we've been talking about endometriosis, and I know it uh -huh. impacts you know, more than 100 million people around the globe. But for someone yeah. who hasn't heard about what endometriosis is, can you just explain it a little bit? Yes. This is my most favorite topic to, you know, I think we talk about it so much, but then some people are like, but wait, what the heck is it? So thank you for asking that. And, you know, it's actually estimated that 200 million people around the globe at this point have it, which is just, wow. So endometriosis is when the type of lining in your uterus that usually sheds during menstruation, that type of lining grows outside of the uterus. So like I said, in, in some cases, it's grown onto people's lungs, the diaphragm, the appendix. A lot of times you'll find it on the bowels too, because so many people, 90% of people with endo suffer from GI issues. So if you have endo in that area, I mean, you're GI issues can even be significantly more worse. We hear this and we think, okay, so the type of lining that grows, that lines the uterus is growing outside. So that just means painful periods. But a lot of people with endo don't even have painful periods. And other symptoms that they might experience are fatigue. Fatigue is such a huge one for people with endo. And so many people with endo don't even know that that's a symptom. So we've got fatigue, painful sex, GI issues, urinary issues, meaning retention, frequency, and urgency. 
infertility, a lot of people experience fertility issues with endo, hip pain, leg pain, back pain. I mean, we have so many of these issues that we don't always connect to endometriosis. And I think that's sometimes why that average diagnosis time, which is eight to 10 years, I think that's a huge reason why that is, is because if you have GI issues, you're not going to your gynecologist, you're going to a GI doctor. So a lot of times these symptoms are presenting themselves, but are getting diagnosed as something else. Absolutely. And even like you mentioned, I know painful sex is a symptom that a lot of women with endometriosis Mm -hmm. experience, people don't always talk about that. Oh my gosh, of course, because... You know, the first time you have sex, your friends are like, oh my gosh, the first time kind of hurts. But then how do you know that it doesn't, it's not supposed to hurt the second, the third time, the 20th time. And I think that we think, well, there might be something wrong with my uterus or maybe his penis is too big, or maybe we're just not compatible. I mean, we can shame spiral into a million different scenarios and none of them are, well, this might be a condition that I have. Now, I'm sure that growing up with endometriosis, there was a lot of different things that you'd probably try to help appease your symptoms. What worked for you? Nothing. (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, again, like I wasn't diagnosed until I was 28 or 29. So high school was my mom coming to pick me up the first couple of days of school. When I started my period, it was downing Midol and a leave. It was heating pads, but I mean, none of those things really helped me. And and I think that's like a, people are always like, well, what does it mean to have painful periods? And it's like, if you take a leave or Midol or you have a heating pad and nothing is helping that pain, then we have a problem. Cause I think, you know, I think there are some women that do have cramps. They don't have endo. They take a leave, maybe they take some CBD or some THC and they're like, oh, wow, cool. It's gone. That's not usually the case for people with endo. So nothing was working for me. I mean, I was in pain all of the time. And you know, if I wasn't in pain, I had fatigue or GI issues. But again, I didn't know that these things were connected to my endo. I give an example of the book. I used to pee in my pants all the time. And I just thought it's because I didn't make it to the bathroom in time. I didn't know that that was part of my endometriosis. And I think that's where it can get really, really tricky is with a lot of these undiagnosed symptoms, we kind of take those on and as our self-identity or we judge ourselves. Like I'm a gross person because I pee my pants or I'm lazy and unmotivated when you really are just having a lot of fatigue. So that's why I think understanding all the symptoms of endo and then connecting them back to your life is just so important because we are not just those symptoms. Yeah. And you bring up a good point because I think with endo, things like depression and anxiety can be really big byproducts of Mm -hmm. like that. Yes. Oh my gosh. And I shared in the book and I try to share this study whenever I can because you know the BBC did a study with over 13 and a half thousand people with endo and nearly half of them had had suicidal thoughts. I mean this is not just a physical condition this is affecting people very very deeply with mental health issues. Well yeah that was actually the next thing I wanted to ask you I wanted to find out the main emotional struggles that you probably felt with going through this mm-hmm. condition. Yeah, I think the hardest thing is is that when you want to be a part of 
your life. If that makes it, you want to go to a friend's birthday party. You want to go on vacation. You want to be able to go to just go to work. And I think what people don't understand sometimes living with a chronic condition like endometriosis is that there are times you just physically cannot do that. And that hurts so bad. I mean, it not only hurts your own heart, but you feel bad that you're letting down others. I think it's not something that we talk about enough with the mental health part of endo is that a lot of times if you're not able to manage it or you're in a bad place, you're really missing out on a lot of your life. And you know it impacts a lot of people's careers too. A lot of people with endo really are not able to have the career that they want because maybe that entails being on their feet all the time, or maybe that entails, you know, something where they're not able to ever work from home. So I think that that weighs a lot on you, right? And I think too, this isn't something like having the flu or having a broken arm. This is something that you have to deal with every single month. And that is sometimes a lot for your brain to process, that there is not an end, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think that also creates this internal chronic stress that I'm sure mm-hmm. activates the symptoms. Oh my gosh. And, you know, I know that you guys know this from all the great interviews that you've done. Increased stress increases pain. Mm-hmm. So it's this cycle that a lot of people with endo get into. And I mean, I was in this cycle myself too. I mean, I felt too much in pain and had too much fatigue to get out of bed, which means I couldn't move my body which means that I wasn't getting any sort of great benefits from moving my body, which made me more depressed. It it can be a really vicious cycle. And in the book, I talked to Dr. Aviva Rome, and she just talks about how we just need to enter that cycle and disrupt it as best as we can. Mm -hmm. As hard as it may be in the beginning. Yes. And that's the thing, right? I have put in the work. I'm 10 years into managing my endo. It was horrible at first to change the things that I was changing in my life. I didn't want to change my diet in the beginning. I mean, granted, I didn't know how to cook at all and I didn't have really good recipes, but it was a huge change in my life. And I think that when Indo is already so disruptive to your life, you think, well, here's another thing that it's making me do. But I think once you start to feel the types of changes that it can have on you mentally and physically, it's just all worth it. Well, yeah. And I remember reading that your diet used to consist of mostly processed, like more junk type foods. Yes. Yes. Eventually you were propelled to make a really big lifestyle and dietary change. So I'd love to hear about that. Well, I was really with my endo, my doctor gave me two suggestions of healing, which is a joke because she suggested a hysterectomy or hormone drug therapy. And at the time, I didn't know that just because you get a hysterectomy, if you don't excise the endo, Mm -hmm. that's not going to actually always help your pain. Because if the endometriosis is outside of your uterus, how does removing the uterus without excising the endo, that's not going to actually solve your problem. And then the drug hormone therapies, I mean, this is just a Band-Aid. And a lot of people have significant side effects. And, you know, it does help some people for myself. It wasn't something I was interested in. And, you know, I told my friend I was going to get a hysterectomy and she sent me a link to a website that talked about how plant-based eating could help endo. 
I thought it was the dumbest thing that she's ever sent me in the world. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to try this because like I said, I didn't know how to cook. And I thought veganism was the dumbest thing in the world, (laughs) but I was also like, I don't have anything to lose. So I tried it. And within three weeks, my pain really started to fade. My cramps weren't gone forever, but I was able to get out of bed again and move my body. And when we look at that, I don't think a plant-based diet is going to solve all your problems. But when you turn to more of a whole foods, plant-based diet, which are lower inflammatory foods, how is that not going to help an inflammatory condition? Even if it's just 5%, and maybe that 5% means that you have a little bit less GI issues or means that you can get out of bed. I just like to make it very clear, you know, this is not a cure, but I always like to say it, it can maybe give you more good days than bad. And, you know, when a doctor is telling you to get a hysterectomy and your friend is like, oh, we'll just try this vegan diet. I know, right? (laughs) I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I think we, like you said, obviously veganism is not going to cure all your problems, but I think we underestimate the power that food can really have. Yeah. Because, you know, like you said, I was living on highly processed foods and wasn't really eating a lot of vegetables. And, you know, and I talk about in my first book, One Part Plant. I didn't know how to cook. So the first month that I did this, I only ate corn tortillas with salsa on top. Cause I was like, okay, well this, this is, has vegetables in it. This is something I know how to make. Mm -hmm. And it just, it was miraculous. And so, yeah, I think when you go from sour patch kids every single day to eating an apple, you're going to have some type of change. Yeah. And I also think it's a form of self-love in a way too, that you're really yes. feed your body with good things so that it's able to heal. If you saw in the book, you know, I think just the practice of self-compassion. I don't know if you've had Dr. Krista Neff on your podcast or, or read any of her work. No. But oh my gosh, I'm excited for you to check it out. Yeah. She researches self-compassion and just the act of us doing things for ourselves and telling our brain, I am here to comfort you. I am here to help you. It can actually change the way that our brain perceives things. So taking that time to, even if it was making that corn tortilla with the tomatoes on top, taking the time to make that, telling myself, okay, I'm going to be here for you now. I think that it can help shift our brains in little ways to help us get there. A hundred percent. And I also think as women, sometimes you grow up thinking like doing things for yourself is selfish. Right. It's expected to take care of others. But I think it's a really good lesson that you really need to take care of yourself first before you can really help anyone else. And I mean, I never saw my mom do that. I mean, she had four kids and my stepdad was in the military. So he was gone for six months at a time. My mom had zero time to take for herself. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't until I would say that I started to change my diet that I took more of that time for myself because I saw the power of doing it. And, you know, I have a six-year-old son and I have a husband and we were homeschooling and like everyone else, not having a ton of time for yourself. But I still made sure to, even if I had to lock myself in the bathroom and pretend like I was going poop for 20 minutes just to get that time alone. Like, I really feel like it's so important to find those little, little times that you can take for yourself. I could not agree with you more. 
Now, I know that one of your goals is to get everyone on the planet to eat one plant-based meal a day. Yes. Can we talk a little bit about (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. And I'm not saying, you know, when people are like, I used to like that band before they were popular, but I will say, I mean, I came up with this concept. It's been about seven or eight years now. And this was before we had a lot of plant-based options. So I think, you know, for a lot of us, there wasn't something that you could just run out and grab. So it was, I think, a little bit more difficult to introduce those plant-based meals. And so, yeah, I mean, when, like I said, when I was starting out, it felt so hard to change my diet, but I really, truly took it one meal at a time. And so when one part plant came out, yeah, it's my mission to just get everyone to eat, just start with one plant-based meal a day. Because I'm sure that you've had people in your life that you know you share the power of food and you share the power of health. We're like, well, I could never do that. It's like, but what if you just did one meal a day? Like that feels that feels approachable, right? I'm not an all or nothing sometimes type of person, and I think a lot of people aren't too. So, I don't know. I think one part plant is just a is a transitional way to do it, and maybe you just stay at one plant based meal a day for the rest of your life. But usually when people start with one, they get to two and oftentimes three. And it's just about making those little changes that put you a little bit out of your comfort zone, but not entirely. Yeah, for sure. And again, like there's so many great options now. Like I told you before we started, I'm in Columbus, Ohio right now visiting family and there's like 20 plant-based restaurants in this city. And so there are options if you're not ready to cook or you don't feel comfortable yet you can go out and grab it from somewhere. You don't have to be, you know, cooking a five course plant-based meal in your house to do it. Right. I could not agree with you more. Now I want to go a little bit back to some of the treatments for endometriosis. Yeah, sure. Hysterectomy. And we were talking about hormones. So what Mm -hmm. are some other of like the standard treatments that are offered to women with endometriosis? So the gold standard of treatment is an excision surgery. And there are two types of surgeries for endometriosis. It's an ablation surgery and there's an excision surgery. I should say there's two types of surgeries for endo. So with an ablation surgery, they're just going to burn away the endo, which oftentimes can create more inflammation. And a lot of times most of the time, if that endo is in a spot that they're not able to burn away, they're actually going to leave the endo inside of you, which is not helping anyone. So with an excision surgeon, their excision surgery, they're able to excise that endo. Kind of like if you think about you have a wart and you're either cutting it out or burning it off, an excision surgery is going to really get cut it out to the root. The problem with excision surgery is, is that it's not covered by insurance. I have had some people say that they fought their insurance company to get it covered, but the majority, I think 99% of people are not able to get that covered. And, you know, it starts with the American College of Gynecology. They're only giving one insurance code for an endosurgery. So ablation surgery, your surgeon might spend 30 minutes burning away whatever they can burn away, where an excision surgery might take up to eight hours. So that doctor is not going to be able to just take that code for the burn away 30 minute ablation surgery. So that surgery is generally out of pocket and that ranges from 15 to $20,000. Wow. 
And when I tell people this, they're like, no way. And it's like, yes. (laughs) I mean, we have not caught up yet at all for treatments for endometriosis. You know, there are a lot of people working really hard to get ACOG and the insurance companies to change this, Mm -hmm. but right now we're still not there yet. Wow. I mean, do you have an extra $20,000 for a surgery? I mean, it's ludicrous. Crazy. So yeah, so those are the two treatments, okay? And then people do lump in hysterectomy into that, which, you know, I think that for a lot of people, if you have a hysterectomy and the endo is excised, I think that that can be an option for people if they've, you know, really tried a lot of other things and it's not helping. Lupron or Lissa are drug hormone therapies. You know, you'll see a lot of times they say that they're a treatment for endo. They are not a treatment for endo. They don't stop the endo from growing. They don't stop necessarily all your pain and symptoms. What those treatments are doing is putting your body into menopause. Right. And it's a temporary fix. And then one more, this is going to shock you, just like the $20,000 price tag. There are still doctors telling people with endo that pregnancy is a treatment, which is just... When I say that, I feel like I'm living in 1950, (laughs) but yes. And what happens is, you know, when you get pregnant, you're obviously, you don't have your period. If you're breastfeeding, then you can, you know, extend that a little bit longer where you're not having that hormonal reactions, but it's not, I mean, how is having a baby a treatment? So just just, pregnant. (laughs) I mean, and it's, you know, whenever I present that, you know, to the endo community, And, you know, sometimes I'm thinking, well, this is outdated. People will come to me and say, a doctor just told me that last week. So those are what people are saying are treatments. Now, management practices are completely different. We have movement. We have stress management. A lot of people do pelvic floor therapy, Chinese medicine. So there are management practices that can go along with the surgery or for some they're able to just use the management practices. And what are some of your favorite ways to manage stress? I mean, I know that now it seems like you have really good control over the symptoms and you're in a much better place, but I mean, early on, like what were some of the ways that you really helped manage your stress? Again, I don't think I did. I mean, my nickname used to be Stressica with my family because I was always stressed out about everything. My biggest stress management tool now, and I think maybe back then, I used it, but didn't really know it was a stress management tool. Definitely movement. For me, movement like this morning, I just needed to get out of my house. I'm staying with my family. I just, so I just went for, you know, a long walk in their neighborhood. And the day before I had signed up for this intensive Pilates class, I woke up, I got my period and I thought, okay, I can't do this class today, but what can I do? And I did movement. And that in itself for me is stress management too, because I'm allowing myself to choose the thing that I'm going to be able to do instead of stressing myself out that I can't do something. Because I think before I was, well, if I can't do that, then I can't do anything. Or if I can't do that, my stupid endo. Instead, I say, okay, well, you can't do that today. What can you do? And I could go for a walk. So I think, you know, not blaming myself, having more self-compassion for myself is a huge stress management tool. 
And it's also working with your body and accepting your diagnosis and your symptoms. You know, we had Dr. Will Cole, and I'll never forget this quote. Oh, yeah. You can't heal a body you hate. And it's 100% true because I feel like sometimes we just run ourselves into the ground thinking like, I need to do this intense workout. I need to be on this, whatever the case may be. But you have to really be in tune with your body if you really want it to heal. Yes. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And and I don't think that we think of that as a stress management tool. But like you said, if we're constantly hating our bodies, and I'm not just talking about the physical appearance, but what's happening that inside of it, that is so stressful. It is so stressful to think that way every single day. So and again, the self-compassion thing, if people are hearing it and they're like, oh my God, so stupid. Like you, It's not standing in front of the mirror and saying that you're pretty. It is literally just telling your brain, hey, what do you need today? I really encourage people to check out the research of Dr. Kristen Neff because it is just mind-blowing. I couldn't agree with you anymore. I think this whole like woo-woo, like self-compassion thing, I think you're right. A lot of people just assume it's kind of like saying these positive affirmations. Yes. It's much more than that. Just to give an example of how I practice self-compassion, I remember the, and I write about this in Know Your Endo, I remember the exact first time I ever practiced it after I read her work and I interviewed someone for the book about self-compassion is I woke up on my period and I thought, oh man, okay, I have a lot of meetings today. And I told myself, okay, what do you need right now? What can we do to make this better? And I walked over, I got a very loose pair of underwear just to kind of show myself I'm giving you some comfort. And then my son was eating breakfast and I did foam rolling next to him as he ate breakfast. And then I thought, okay, well, you have to get dressed and you feel like you look like shit. So I put on a very loose dress and some sparkly shoes. So it's just these like really small acts to just be like, just take care of you. Even if it's putting on sparkly shoes that just make you feel a little bit less bad about yourself. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's amazing how the small things really do add up. And even like this past year, a lot of people were home, but a lot of people did find that if they dress up once in a while, they feel better about themselves. Yes. So I think we all have to find the little things that make us feel a lot better. Yes, exactly. And now I know with endometriosis, we spoke about some doctors saying that pregnancy helps relieve symptoms. So we also did talk about endometriosis and infertility. So are there any statistics on that and ways to kind of optimize fertility if that's what someone with endometriosis wants? With the fertility part, I just always tell people to seek an expert on this. Now, again, with the fertility with endo, There's a lot of people that have a hard time finding an expert, but the stats on that is that 50% of people with unexplained infertility have endometriosis. So a lot of times what's happening is, is people are not getting diagnosed with endo until they start experiencing fertility issues. So maybe they didn't have painful periods. Maybe they weren't presenting other symptoms. I think when it comes to fertility and endo, if you are young, explore freezing your eggs. If you have the opportunity to see a fertility specialist, just to start to plan for your fertility. And then this is hard to say because I never want to squash anyone's dreams of having a biological child, but there are really cool ways to become a parent in other ways besides giving birth. And you, you can always start to explore those just to see how you feel about them too. I mean, I knew that I never wanted pregnancy for my body. It's just, I don't know if my endo angels were looking out for me or what, but 
bringing my son into my life in a way that was not through birth was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. So I think exploring those options can be really beautiful too. And there are so many options too, which I think is really, again, going back to the stress, it relieves that stress that some women may feel. Yeah. And you know, my mom had four kids with endo. There's a lot of people that have children with endo. So it's not something that is not possible, but I just think it's so important if you do think you want to have biological children to just get in front of it and start educating yourself and seeing a specialist if you can. And that kind of goes back to what we said about putting a bandaid on something like girl goes in to see her gynecologist. She has some symptoms. He puts her on birth control. Symptoms are a little Mm -hmm. bit better. 10 years later, she's like, I want to get off birth control. I want to start having kids. And then she finds out she has endo, for example. Right. Oh my gosh. When people are diagnosed with endo after they've gone through fertility or infertility issues, to me, it's just this double whammy of trauma because you're finding out that you're not able to have children. Plus you're finding out that you have a condition that may have been diagnosed a long time ago if someone would have listened to you. So with that, I also think it's so important to go to a therapist if you can, talk to other people that have experienced it, find empathetic people in your life, like true empathetic people. Because when people text me like, well, everything happens for a reason. And it's like, that is not helpful at all. You want someone else that has been through it and gets what you're going through. A hundred percent. And that's why even, you know, having books like yours out there will help people realize that they're not alone. They're not the only one who's going through this. And I think that makes it easier for sure. Yes. Now I'm curious if there's any foods that help you on your worst day when you feel the most symptoms, are there any foods that you typically reach for? I don't like to focus on the negative, but I will say it's more about the foods that I don't reach for because my biggest for myself, again, everyone's endo body is different, but I know my biggest endo triggers are sugar, alcohol, and highly processed foods. And those are also the foods that I want most when I don't feel good. So I definitely think that it's something that I'm very mindful the days leading up to my period and while on my period to say, hey, I know that someone just brought you home a vegan gluten-free piece of cake that looks like the most delicious thing you've ever seen, but maybe have that in a couple of days instead. So really to me, it's filling my body with as many whole foods as possible and really trying to eliminate, I call them the BIs, my big inflammatories on those days. And that's when I notice the biggest difference. Yeah. And for everyone that may be different and it's kind of just listening to your body and recognizing the cues that it's giving you when you consume those foods. Yeah. I just had someone reach out to me that said they finished reading my book they've now noticed that red meat is one of their biggest triggers. Mm. Whereas other people might have no problem with meat. And I think that there's this quote unquote endo diet. I don't think that there's an endo diet for everyone. And, you know, so many people with endometriosis also suffer from gut health issues like SIBO. Mm. And as much as garlic is an anti-inflammatory, for someone that has SIBO, that's going to be something that really is disruptive to their gut. So it's really tapping into your own body and saying, what are my triggers? I like that you mentioned that because I don't think there's one diet that works. Every single person is so different that you can put me and you on the same diet and we'll experience completely different symptoms. Yes, exactly. 
Now, do you have top three tips for women that are struggling with endometriosis? Well, okay. So number one, I think to really check in with your mental health, just the mental health part. Are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling more anxiety? Are you having suicidal thoughts? I think that these are things that we need to really tap into and see if we need to get some support for those. Again, we talked about the mental health component before, but I don't think it's discussed enough how it can impact our mental health. So just please check in with that and get the help if you need it. And also with that, say, it's okay if I feel this way, because I think we oftentimes judge ourselves if we have a great husband or a great job. It's like, how could I feel depressed? Well, when you have endo, you are definitely more likely to have depression and anxiety. So check in with that. I think the second thing is, is to check in and see your team that you're working with. And if you're not able to work with a huge team, like I'm not, I have a gynecologist and I kind of do everything else myself, but is that person supporting you? What are they telling you that pregnancy is a treatment for endometriosis? Are you able to find someone that is going to be your team member, like we talked about earlier, like being your partner in this and helping you and being open to management practices that you might want to explore? I think that is another huge one. And then the third one, which I feel like is the one thing I did not want to be told back in the day because it was so annoying to me, but I do think that movement is just so critical for people with endo. It's probably the chapter that blew my mind the most writing it and researching it and doing the interviews. It's just when you have endo, your body is clenched and hunched and so much of our muscles and joints are are just not lengthening. And I think that when you have endo and you're told, well, go exercise or make sure to move your body, it feels so dismissive because for a lot of us, we can't even get out of bed. So how can we go for a run? So ways that you can move your body in bed, foam rolling, stretching, whatever you can do to continue to move your muscles and joints, I think can be so extremely helpful and powerful with endo. Yeah. I mean, again, it's just about getting some movement and seeing what feels right and not overextending yourself either, but just finding that work for you. And you know, my sister has endo and she runs triathlons. So there are people that are fully capable of doing high intensity, long endurance type races for myself. That's not how my endo works. And maybe if I didn't have endo, I still couldn't do that. But I think when I was able to shift that and say, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to run a marathon, but I'm going to be really good at rebounding or Pilates. It really helped me shift my focus on what movement means to me. And I also really like that you mentioned like not judging yourself if you are feeling depressed, because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of times I think gratitude is great and being grateful for the things that you have in your life. Like you said, like a good husband, whatever, but not judging yourself for feeling depressed or anxious. I think that's really important. Yeah. Because I mean, how many times has Oprah told you to keep a gratitude journal when you are feeling the lowest, the lowest in pain mentally, physically, sometimes it's hard to think of something that you're grateful for. So it's okay sometimes. Right. Now, when it comes to getting ultrasounds, if you do have cysts, Mm -hmm. getting your hormones checked, I know you're not a doctor, so obviously this is not medical advice, but Mm -hmm. how often would you recommend that people ask their doctors to get things like that checked? 
Well, I know for myself, I have a history of cysts. They love to grow fast and often. So I get an ultrasound every six months. They're not inexpensive. I mean, every time that they're, this is how much insurance will cover and this is how much it's going to cost. I'm always shocked every six months that that's how much it's going to cost. So it's not an inexpensive venture, but I do think it can be so helpful. I mean, I don't know if you saw in the book, but I went for five years without getting an ultrasound and I asked for them continually at every exam. I said, can I get an ultrasound? And three different doctors said, well, if you're not in pain, you don't need one. And in that span of time, I had a cyst that grew to 10 centimeters and ruptured. So oh my gosh! just because you're not in pain doesn't always mean that there's nothing happening in your body. So now when I go to a new doctor, and this is a great example of advocating for yourself, when we meet, I say, I would like to get an ultrasound every six months. Mm-hmm. And if you're not okay with that, then I can find a different doctor. And because I'm not going to go through that again. So I get one every six months. I think if you don't have a history of cysts, maybe once a year is fine. I think talk to your doctor about that. And then in terms of hormone testing, I mean, I have gotten it done maybe once a year. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as much as I practice my stress management and movement and everything, my cortisol is always a hot mess. So I continually try to do that. And then I get my thyroid tested about every six months as well. Because when you have endo, the rate of having comorbidities, which means other conditions along with the endo are pretty high. So a lot of people with endo also have Hashimoto's, fibromyalgia. We experience other issues along with it. So That's also just so important that we don't blame everything on our endo because we might be missing something else that's happening. A hundred percent. And our adrenal glands, our thyroid and our sex hormones are all so interconnected that I I think you need to check everything and make sure you're not just putting every symptom on endo when there may be an underlying condition. Yes. Does someone in your family have endo or do you have endo? No, but I know a lot about endo. I just graduated naturopathic medical school. So okay. I just think it's like the coolest thing ever that you're doing a podcast on endo just to, and you don't even have it. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about people just being their best health advocate in any condition that they have. Well, thank you. Yeah, of course. Now, one question we love to ask all of our mm-hmm. guests is if you could have tea with anyone dead or alive, <gasps> who would it be and why? I don't know. <laughs> I don't, the first person that maybe it's because I'm in my dad's basement and I see all of his like commemorative jerseys, but I'm going to have to say Dr. J Julius Irving. I just have always been a huge fan of his and he really changed a lot in the game of basketball in terms of how much players got paid. And I don't know. I, and he's just so sleek and cool. I'd like to have tea with Dr. J. That sounds like a good one. Yeah. That would be amazing. Now, for anyone out there who's going to listen to this that wants to learn more about your work or potentially get in touch with you, order your books, all the great stuff that you have out there, where are the best places to reach you at? Wait, can I ask you guys who you would have tea with? Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like mine always changes. I would probably say just because I was reading his book last night, to be honest, Uh would be Dr. Joe Dispenza. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. I just think there's so much wisdom behind what he talks about. So I, I would okay. 
Dr. Joe Dispenza. Yeah, I think Dispenza would be good. I think Gandhi would also be good. <laughs> that is a good oh, one. That's, that's probably a yeah, good one. That's yeah. a really good one as well. <laughs> just learning about how to be more peaceful and just, you know, to still have a mission and a purpose, but to do it in a more peaceful, calm, collected way, I think would be really beneficial for me and for a lot of us. Okay, cool. So yours are smarter probably than having oh, yours is great. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. think you can learn from all three of them. Yeah, he's just Dr. J. I just want to be that just like sleek and classy and cool at that age. So but yeah, so you can find my work, <laughs> knowyourindo.com for everything endometriosis, and then jessicamernan.com has my books on it. And then I'm on Instagram at Jessica Marnan and also at Know Your Endo. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We both learned so much about this incredibly important topic, and I'm sure that your wisdom is going to help a lot of our listeners and hopefully show people that they're not alone in this journey and that there's a lot of options and routes that they could take in trying to appease their symptoms and live a healthier life. Thank you so much. Of course. We really appreciate your time. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us on our episode with Jessica Mernan. We had such a fascinating discussion about endometriosis and how proper nutrition, movement, and stress management can help manage symptoms and overcome a lot of the challenges associated with the condition. As always, if you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at drinkdowntoearth.com or get in touch with us on our Instagram at drinkdte. In the meantime, stay healthy and stay hydrated. Cheers. Now it's time for you to go out there and do at least one small thing to better your health today. Always choose to make your life a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Until next time. Cheers to good health.